in the book of Ecclesiastes, which was written by Solomon many, many years ago. He says this in chapter 7. A good name is better than precious ointment. And the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind. And the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools in the house of mirth. When we hear a proverbial statement like that, a proverbial saying like that, we may think it's ludicrous. He said in that text, it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. Nobody wants to do that. Now, the super spiritual among us may shake our heads and think, yeah, yeah, that's right. It's, it's God's words. Of course, it's right. The spiritual thing to say is to agree with that kind of sentiment. But deep down inside, we know that when we go to the house of mourning, we'd rather be somewhere else. We'd rather be in the house of feasting, and by that he means the house of merriment, the house of gladness and joy. No one wants to mourn. No one wants to go to the house of mourning because that means that we've lost someone we care about. We just had a funeral service here yesterday for dear sister in Christ who's gone to be with the Lord. We use that terminology that they've gone to be with the Lord to remind ourselves of the truth that though we grieve, we do not grieve as those without hope. Because our sister is with the Lord. He has received her according to his promise. We will see her again. And yet going to a funeral service, even as a Christian, involves grieving. It involves mourning. We're not exempt from that as believers. We have lost a relationship in a sense. Though again, we believe it will be restored in the end. But it's more than just the loss of another. The house of mourning is a reminder to us that just as this person has died... If the Lord tarries, we will also. And we don't like to be reminded of the brevity of life. We don't like to be reminded of our mortality. But again, Solomon, who is perhaps the wisest person who's walked the face of the earth, save for the Lord Jesus himself, Solomon made this statement. It is better to go into the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. He says, for that is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. The end of all mankind, again, if the Lord tarries, is that we will all come to an end. We will all die. Our life as we know it will change. And the living are no more reminded of this than when we go into the house of mourning. And the irony is that Solomon says that it is the wise who go there. It is the wise who consider Are you wise this morning? Do you seek to be wise? Does the reality of the brevity of your life, the reality of the end of your life, make a difference for you in the way you live today? 
This morning we're returning to the Psalms, and in particular Psalm 90. Psalm 90 is introduced as a Psalm of Moses. It is a Psalm in which he considers the brevity of the life of man, and he contrasts that with the eternality of God. What do I mean by that? I mean that though our lives are but a vapor, here today and gone tomorrow, God is eternal. He is forever and shall never not be. In the final analysis, it is the eternality of God and the brevity of the life of man that moves Moses to action in his day to seek the Lord for strength to live for his glory. Instead of running from the reality of our brief lives or becoming stagnant in fear of the brevity of life, Moses chooses instead to acknowledge it and to press forward and to press forward in faith in order to accomplish what God has left his people to do. And likewise, we should seek the eternal God for both guidance and grace to accomplish his purposes in this life. We're going to read Psalm 90 and then we'll look at it in detail. Psalm 90. It says a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, and by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. And the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let us pray. Father, we thank you again for today. We thank you for your word as Jesus prayed in John 17. Your word is truth. And we pray that you would sanctify us by your truth. I pray that the words of my mouth and the words of our the thoughts and the meditations of our hearts collectively, that they would be acceptable in your sight this morning. For Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name, amen. Well, this text instructs us in three ways. As we consider the brevity of our lives, we're reminded to stand in awe of the eternality of God. That's verses one and two. Second, as we consider the brevity of our lives, we're reminded of the reason for our mortality, namely that we have offended the eternal God. And third, as we consider the brevity of our lives, we're reminded to seek the eternal God for the ability to live in a way that honors him. 
We stand in awe at the eternal, eternality of God. We are reminded of the reason for our mortality, our sin. And we're reminded to seek the eternal God for the ability to live in a way that honors him. Well, let's look at that first point. As we consider the brevity of our lives, we're reminded to stand in awe at the eternality of God. Again, verses 1 and 2. And there again, we have the title and then the first two verses. The title was a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. This psalm is recorded in the original with the title, again, A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. Moses is the author of this text. It's interesting that Moses is the author of this text as Moses is recorded to have lived for 120 years at the time of his death. If you remember your Old Testament history, Moses didn't die of old age, in fact. The text comments in Deuteronomy 34, Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. That means he still had 20-20 vision or whatever passed for suitable vision at his time. And he still had the same energy he always had. Neither his vision nor his energy was diminished with age. Wouldn't you love to have that as a testimony at the end of your life? <laughs> Moses, in fact, died when he died as a result of his failure to obey the Lord. He didn't die from some sickness or disease. He became angry with the people of God. If you remember, again, your Old Testament history, he was commanded by God to speak to a rock so that it would bring forth water. But Moses was angry. And so in anger, he struck the rock with a staff. And because of that, the Lord gave him a consequence of not being able to enter into the promised land. But he took his life prior to his being able to enter into the promised land. Moses is the author of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. He was, of course, brought up in the house of Pharaoh of Egypt, having been found by the daughter of Pharaoh, though he later decided to identify himself with the people of God. He was educated and trained in the house of Pharaoh, presumably as any other child would have been. So to have such prolific writing, even poetry, is not out of the question for a man like Moses. He didn't spend all of his life wandering in the wilderness. The very same Moses wrote this poem for much of the same reason that he wrote the Pentateuch. He wrote it in order to remind the people of God of the truth of who God is. As you read through the psalm, it's clear that Moses has the brevity of life on his mind. He's thinking about the brief time that we all spend on earth, how relatively short our lives are. There are indeed times when life feels like a vapor. And yet what Moses turns his attention to first is not the number of years that we have, nor is it the difficulty of those years. He will address those things, but rather what he turns his attention to first as he's thinking about the brevity of life is the fact that God is eternal. That God is great. He's greater than that. Again, Lord, you have been our dwelling place for all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever, you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. He says, you are our eternal dwelling. This is Hebrew poetry, so Moses uses metaphors to describe the truth about who God is. God has been to the people of Israel, there, that is the us in the text, he has been a dwelling place for them. The idea of a dwelling place 
as one writer said, is simply is more than simply a place to live. It's much more of a place of refuge, a place of safety. Deuteronomy thirty three twenty seven, the eternal God is a dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. He drove out the enemy before you. Or in Psalm ninety one verse nine, it says, "For you have made the Lord my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place." That God is a dwelling place means that He's a place of safety. Moses says that God has been this for his people for all generations. Now you may wonder why has God done this? Why has God been so particularly favorable towards Israel? Why has he been preserving his people? Why is he a refuge for them? Well, there's a lot that we could say and a lot that we could go through. I'll just kind of summarize in the beginning When God created all things, of course, he created man and he placed man in the garden as his representative. And as his representative, man was charged with obeying and fulfilling all of the will of God. But instead of obeying and fulfilling all of the will of God, man decided to do his own thing. He disobeyed. He completely disregarded one specific prohibition that God gave. Even though he was virtually able to do whatever he wanted in the garden, He was given this one prohibition and he disobeyed that command. And so after the first man sinned, everyone who was born in him, if you read through the text of Genesis, you see this kind of repeated refrain of, of things that reproduce after their kind. When God created the trees, he says that the trees reproduce after their kind. When he created the animals, the animals reproduced after their kind. Adam and Eve, when they reproduced after the fall, they reproduced after their kind. And so each human being who came after Adam was born with that disposition toward disobeying God. We call it a sin nature. But God desired to reverse that. He desired to do something about that. He wants to redeem humanity. And so he started a plan to redeem humanity. By the time we get to Genesis chapter 12, we see this mass of humanity spread throughout the earth. Sometime before that, we know the Tower of Babel happened. All of humanity was united before then. After the Tower of Babel, God confused their languages. And all of those who had the same language kind of went off and did their own thing. Other people who had the same language went off and did their own thing. So we see this massive um, spread of people uh, spreading throughout the known world with these different languages, eventually developing different cultures, different customs. And so we start to identify different, what the text calls ethnic groups, different families, um, different nations. And so how is God going to reach all of these different ethnic groups? Well, he chooses one group of people out of all the groups of people, not because there's anything special there, but because he wants to reach all people. So he chooses one group of people. He calls them out. He sets them apart. He gives them truth and he uses them to reach everyone else. That's what God has done for Israel. And so why has God been a dwelling place for Israel? Because he chose them to be the conduit through which he would bring blessing to all the families of the earth. And we read that very clearly in Genesis chapter 12, where God called Abram from his family. He says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and so you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families, ethnic groups, all the nations, all the peoples, all the families of the earth will be blessed. 
as again the promises made to preserve Israel was not so much about Israel but ultimately in order for God to fulfill his plan of redemption for all people. He made himself a dwelling place, a hiding place, a refuge for Israel in order to bring about that grand plan of redemption to reverse the effect of the fall. Thus, when we get to the New Testament and we see terminology of being in Christ, we have a context for it. This is a term that Paul uses primarily in his writings in order to describe the status and location of a believer. Particularly in the letter of Paul to the Ephesians in chapter 1, Paul is clear the believer is in Christ. All the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places are in Christ, and we are in Christ by faith. All and any person from any ethnic group on the face of the whole planet who puts their faith in Jesus Christ then has access to all of these blessings. God has given us a clear refuge, a clear dwelling place, and that place is Jesus Christ. Well, getting back to the text, Moses says that God has been a dwelling place for his people for all generations, and we know the reason why. He is a dwelling, he is an eternal dwelling, in part because he is the eternal God. Look back at the text, verse 2. Again, it says, before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world. If we had any doubt as to whether Moses wrote this psalm, I think this would be pretty significant evidence. The one who, inspired by the Holy Spirit, described the very creation of the cosmos by the hand of God, makes reference to it here in this text in Psalm 90. But what's more significant than the fact of creation are the reference to time in this verse. He says, before the mountains were brought forth, or you had ever formed the earth and the world, before all those things happened. Now, for those of you who like theology or philosophy, I'm going to give you a little nugget here. This one should help to exercise those neurons in your brain. Creation itself, think about this, creation itself marks the creation of time. Right? Time is a product of the processes within the created order. The earth traveling around the sun is a measure of a year. The earth spinning on its, as- its-, its axis marks one day. The division of that day is marked by hours. The division of those hours is marked by minutes. The division of those minutes is marked by seconds. Time is a product of the processes of creation. Therefore, there's not really a before creation. Because before has to do with time. <laughs> and there's no time before creation. There's no prior to. That's why Moses says in the text, from everlasting to everlasting. He says, before those things, he's using terminology that we would understand. Before those things, even though it's not really a before. Before time, God is God. After time, after time ends, after time as we know it ceases to be, God is God. God is God from everlasting to everlasting. All of who God is, all of what God is, he is. His godness can never be added to or diminished because time, even though time affects us, Time changes us. Time changes circumstances for us. Time doesn't affect God in the same way. All of who he is, all of what he is, is 
forever. This is also reminiscent of the name that God gave to Moses. If you remember when God called Moses to go to Israel, to call his people out of Israel, out of Egypt, I'm sorry. They were enslaved in Egypt at the time. God commissioned Moses. He commanded Moses to go to the people to tell them that he was there to deliver them. Which is interesting if you think about it because Moses was being tasked to go back to a country where he killed a man in order to demand from the leader of that country that he let go of all of his slave labor. In that passage in Exodus chapter 3, Moses asked a pretty reasonable question. He says, if I come to Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God's response was, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Understand that Moses' question was, God, what is your name so that I can tell them? Therefore, the only reasonable response would have been a name. And it sounds strange for God to say, I am who I am, but it's pretty clear as we think about what Moses is saying even here in Psalm 90, that God was intending to make a point. In theology, as we study theology, we would go to that passage in Exodus chapter 3 and we say here, you see it says that God says the I am. He refers to himself as the I am. And part of the implication in that is that he simply is. There is no change in him. Who says that? Is that I think Paul says there's no shifting shadow. No, that was James. There's no shadow of change in him. He is who he is forever. And I think that was intended to be an encouragement for his people. I think that was also intended to remind them of the, the narrative of uh, Jacob wrestling with God in, in the wilderness, if you remember that. And I know I'm taking you back a lot into, into the depths of your Old Testament knowledge, but Jacob was wrestling with God in the wilderness, and, and um, God renamed Jacob Israel at the time. But also at the time when God renamed Jacob Israel, his name went from trickster or supplanter to one who strives with God. When God renamed Jacob to Israel, Jacob asked God, he asked the person he was wrestling with, what is your name? And he said, why do you need to know what my name is? You don't need to know what my name is. Right? And part of that was just to kind of put Jacob in his place, right? You don't need to know what my name is. I'm greater than you in authority and significance. But I think it also ties into what he says to Moses there in Exodus chapter 3. You don't need to know what my name is. My name is, I am, I just am. I am the God who is. That's what you need to know. You need to know that about me. You don't need to know anything about another personal name. And you can, you can use this name to refer to me. Forever, This is my memorial name is what um, God says to Moses and he communicates that to the people. But the point is my name is not the most important thing. What is the most important thing is that I am God. I am the everlasting God. I simply am. There's no shadow of change in me. You need to know that about me. That's the most significant truth. When faced with seemingly, in other words, seemingly insurmountable odds, even in the face of death, 
Whether you're Jacob, who was at the time returning to face his brother whose birthright he stole in order to claim a land that was promised to him by God. Or Moses, a murderer who's tasked with returning to the country where he did his crime to ask the leader of that country to let go all of, his, of all of his free slave labor. Or whether you are that same group of people returning back to the land that was promised to your forefather, tasked with ridding the land of multiple warring nations. When faced with those insurmountable odds, in the face of death, the answer that God gives to his people, the response that he gives to his people is, I am who I am. I am the eternal God. And likewise, when we face what appears to be insurmountable odds, even in the face of death, as we consider our mortality, what is God's message to us? I am the everlasting God, the eternal God, the one who is forever a dwelling place, a refuge for his people. I am the one who is sending you. I am the one who is with you in the midst of this difficulty, in the midst of this turmoil, in the midst of this trial. Even as you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the I am is with you. God everlasting. Remember years ago going to the funeral of a brother who died in college. The song that was sung at his funeral was called The Everlasting God. This was what we might consider a praise song, what the Bible would refer to as a spiritual song. It wasn't a typical hymn, but they had a band at the church, so there were drums, there was a guitar, there was piano, there was maybe some brass going on, and this song was playing, and they were just rocking out. And I was thinking, man, this seems a little incongruous. We're, we're at a funeral, and they're just, they're just they're getting into it. Like, this song is kicking, and I'm starting to tap my foot a bit. And then I started thinking about the words of the song. It says, you are the everlasting God. This is the chorus. You are the everlasting God, the everlasting God. You do not faint. You won't grow weary. You're the defender of the weak. You comfort those in need. You lift us up on wings like eagles. And they were singing that. And at the height of that, I got it. What do we need to hear in the face of death? What do we need to be reminded of? That we don't have a God who's like us, who grows weak who's weary, who suffers, who's taken off guard, who's distracted, who's confused, who's depressed, who's discouraged. We don't have a God who faces death in the same way that we do. He doesn't suffer death. He will never end. We serve a God who is everlasting and who has everlasting strength for those who are weary, those who are weak. This is Isaiah 40. Have you not known, have you not heard that Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He does not grow faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He, the one who is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, the one who does not grow faint or weary, the one whose understanding is unsearchable, he gives power to the faint and to him who has no might. He increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord, again, the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. 
We don't go to visit national parks to see the mountains that God created to make ourselves feel better about who we are. We don't look up at the stars in the sky to boost our self-image. There's this compensity, this, this tendency in us that needs to see something greater, particularly when we're struggling, when we're hurting. Well, who is greater than the everlasting God? The Lord. The one who never grows weary. The one who is never confused. The one who never needs wisdom from anyone. He doesn't need a counselor. He always knows what he's doing. He always knows what's right. And he offers strength to those who find refuge in him. Getting back to the text, and we'll move a little bit quicker through this section. Again, as we consider the brevity of life, not only are we reminded that there is one greater than us, that he is the everlasting God, the eternal God, we're also reminded of the reason for our mortality. Verses 3 through 11. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, and by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath we bring our years to an end like a sigh the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80 yet their span is but toil and trouble they are soon gone and we fly away who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you verse 3 is a general statement that he offers declaring the penalty that God gives as a result of our sin He says, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. God returns us to the dust. Don't miss the point that God is the mover in this psalm. He's the doer. He is a dwelling place for his people. He is God. He returns men to the dust. He has anger over sin. God returns us to the dust. We were brought forth from dust and to dust we shall return. We spend thousands, millions of dollars in research, perhaps, working on medicines to prolong and enhance life in attempts to cheat death, and yet we all still die. For all our technological advances, we're not able to keep ourselves from dying. The question is why? The answer is that God has done this. Our creator has determined that death is the penalty for our sin, our disobedience. As I said earlier, all who are born in Adam were reproduced after his kind. And his kind are the kind who tend toward disobedience and sin. Thus God has determined that the penalty for our sin is death. And we shouldn't miss the contrast here either. God is eternal from everlasting to everlasting before time began. Again, if we can say before. Before time began, he is God. After time comes to an end, he is God. He is eternally God and is eternally a refuge. We're not eternal as he is. We had a beginning. We're subject to change all of our lives and we will have an end. But again, God has done this. His authority over us as creator, as the everlasting God, extends to his ability to cause our lives to come to an end. 
We're powerless against it. Some people may take their own lives. Others may have their lives taken by someone else or by some sickness or disease, but it's still death. And it's death because that's a, court, that's a part of God's plan. Now, he goes on to expand that general statement in the rest of the section. He says, consider the brevity of our lives. Verse 4, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. This is the brevity of life. It is brief in comparison to the eternal perspective of the Lord. A thousand years to him are like yesterday when it is past, or a watch in the night when it is past. Yesterday is gone. Yesterday was today then, now it's yesterday. Some of us barely remember what we ate or what we wore or what we did yesterday. But we have no way of interacting with yesterday anymore. It's gone. You can't take anything back. You can't do it over. Similarly, a watch in the night, a period of time that someone would keep watch over a town or city, a watch in the night may seem long as you're going through it, but afterwards it's forgotten. Life is brief. It is fleeting. Again, to the Lord, a thousand years is like nothing. It's like yesterday or a watch in the night. He continues on with this analogies. You sweep them away as with a flood. We've seen those pictures, those videos of floods that happen in various areas. We saw the floods in Ellicott City and things were just getting swept down the road. I mean, vehicles, large vehicles, SUVs just getting pushed down the road with water like it was nothing. He says, like grass that is renewed in the morning, it flourishes and is renewed by the evening, it fades away. We've all been there on a hot summer day in Maryland. You make the mistake of cutting your grass too low the night before. By the end of the next day, it's withered and dying. Our days are like that. Isaiah says it this way, all flesh is like grass and all its beauty is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. That is our life. It's like yesterday when it's gone. It's like a watch in the night. It's like a flood that rushes by and sweeps everything away. It's like grass that's beautiful in the morning but fades in the evening. That's how it is from the perspective of an eternal God. But we don't think that way. Quite often we live our life as if we'll live forever and we give no real thought to death. Young people have their lives ahead of them, right? Middle-aged people are quote-unquote middle-aged, so maybe they have another half of their life ahead of them. Those who are older or closer, perhaps, they, you know, people tend to think they're closer to the end of their life than the rest. We relegate thoughts of death to funeral services, to aged loved ones who appear to be on their way out, but not to us, never to us. We never think that it'll happen to us. And we may go into the house of mourning and at that time consider our end, but we usually try to forget about it as quickly as possible. I mentioned earlier, again, that from the perspective of Solomon, it is the wise who consider this often. The believer of all people should consider the brevity of life in part because we know why life is brief. Look at verses 7 through 11 again. He underscores this point. For we are brought to an end by your anger. 
By your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or if by reasons of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? As you read the text, you see that four, and that reminds us that of the previous words, we're like, again, that grass that flourishes in the morning and fades in the evening. Why? Because we're brought to an end by his anger, and in his wrath we are dismayed. He has set our iniquities before him and our secret sins in the light of his presence. Again, the Lord gives death as a penalty as a result of his wrath, his anger over our sin. The text refers to our iniquities, our secret sins. These are one and the same. We all know what sin is. Horizontally, we tend to think in terms of sin. Like, we tend to think of sin in terms of how we measure up to others. I'm not as bad as that person. We might see someone on the news and we say, well, I didn't do what that person did. So I'm clearly not, I'm OK. Right. I'm not like that guy. I'm not like one of those bad people. But the word of God is clear. Sin is first measured vertically. Sin is measured in terms of our offense against the Lord, the sovereign ruler, the king. How have we lived up to his standard? Have we obeyed his commands? Have we sought his pleasure or have we pushed the boundaries? He sees sin like no other. The text says that he sets our iniquities before him. Even our secret sins are manifest. They're made visible. They're made clear in his presence. Think about that for a minute. People see our faults, our failures, the ones we cannot cover up, the ones we can cover up with makeup on Sunday morning or with our Sunday morning happy demeanor. Perhaps our families see the realer side of us behind closed doors. And then there's a side that no one else sees, the inner us. The thoughts of our minds and our hearts that we don't and probably shouldn't share with others. Even the secret sins that we coddle and indulge in when no one else knows. You know who sees those? God sees those. The everlasting God sees those. Anger, judgmentalism, pride, impatience, our tendency to resist authority, lust, greed, envy. No other human being may see all of those things in your life, but the eternal God does. In the light of his presence, he sees them. He knows them. I wonder what does he see when he sees you? What does he hear when he hears the thoughts and intentions of your heart? If we really understood how God sees us, that he sees all, all of our sin and all of its fullness, the question when we're faced with difficulty or death should not be, why is this happening to me? But rather, if we understood the holiness of God, the greatness of God, how our sin offends him, Habakkuk says that his eyes are too pure to even behold evil. If we understood these things, how our sin offends him, how he's made to see our, even our secret sins daily, then we wouldn't wonder why we have to die. We would wonder how in the world we made it this long. We would wonder why have we not been swept away by his wrath sooner? Why would he be so gracious to delay what we deserve? The point that Moses makes it, He underscores that truth is that the reason why our lives are so brief and we have to understand this is precisely because of our sin. He gives kind of a summary statement in verse 9. 
All our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble, and they soon fly away. They're soon gone, and we fly away. All our days pass under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. He acknowledges that no matter how many days we live, they are few and they're lived under the sentence of death with the knowledge that it is coming. We may try to ignore it, but it's still coming. The years of our life are 70 or 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They're soon gone and we fly away. I've heard some people try to claim 70 or 80 years as a promise, but that's not how poetry works. This is not a promise of how many years you have to live. Some people live more, some people live less. As we all know, there are all kinds of reasons why people die. The point of this section is that we will all die. Maybe you'll get 70 or 80 years is kind of the point. Maybe you'll get 20 or 30 years. We're all going to die, though. It's going to happen. As we go through life, we will experience toil and trouble. This is a very sobering text, and it's intentionally so. This section is pushing us to consider not just the fact of the brevity of our lives, but also the why. Why are our lives so brief? It's something that we do not consider often enough. In verse 11, he says further, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Who considers that? Who thinks about it? Who considers the anger of God over sin and the reality that we should suffer and we should suffer more? The implication of this question is that no one really does. No one really considers in truth. We don't often consider it, but we should. Because when we do, it provides us with much needed perspective. I know that I don't often consider the Lord's anger over my sin. When I experience toil and suffering, when I experience the death of a loved one, I don't think, oh, right, God is holy, sin has consequences, and I deserve much worse. I think... And if I'm just being transparent and honest, I think, how could this happen to me? Perhaps on the plan of God, he got my name mixed up with someone else's, right? Like if there's a, a file folder with everyone's name in it and my name was sitting next to somebody else and maybe that guy's name was Rob because sometimes people get Rod mixed up with Rob and they say Rob and I'm like, no, it's Rod. So maybe there's a folder next to mine and the name is Rob. And so somebody pulled it and put the wrong trial in there on accident right like it shouldn't happen to me who considers the power of your anger and your wrath I think that if I did consider the reality of my sin and how it is ever before the Lord more often I'd spend less time complaining about someone who wronged me I'd spend less time complaining about some circumstance or inconvenience that befalls me I'd spend less time wallowing in self-pity when I encounter toil and trouble and more time being grateful for the time that I haven't. I'd spend more time being grateful for the times that I haven't been wrong with someone, but the, the relationships that I have that are a blessing to me. I'd spend more time thinking about the fact that I know the everlasting God and that if I have nothing else, I have him. The fact of the matter is when you've learned to react in trial or trouble, even trial or trouble that leads to death, first with gratitude for the goodness of God, for what you have, instead of looking at what you do not have, then you know that you're maturing in your faith. 
It is as Job said, shall we accept good from the hand of God and not adversity? The implication of that question is that we should accept both because they're both from the hand of the Lord. And the reality is that we deserve much worse, but his mercy and grace is always more. Moving on, the question then becomes, how can we endure? How can we endure the strength of his anger concerning our sin? How can we endure the troubles of this life, the toil and trouble that we face? Considering our mortality reminds us in our weakness to look to a God who is greater than us. It reminds us that the reason for our mortality is our own sin. And finally, as we consider the brevity of our lives, we're reminded of our need for the grace of the eternal God to give us the ability to endure and to live in a way that honors him. That's verses 12 through 17. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. We haven't talked much about the, per, the aspect of the psalm that it is a prayer, but it does say again in the title that it's a prayer of Moses. If we were to look at it as a prayer, we've talked about some of the different elements of prayer before. We could see in verses 1 and 2 a prayer of praise, praising God for being eternal. In verses 3 through 11, a prayer of confession, confessing our sin before him. In verses 12 through 17, this last section, a prayer of petition. In the face of such insurmountable challenge, our mortality as well as considering the high calling that we have by faith in Christ. Again, we talked about the fact that we ought to be walking in love. We ought to be walking in wisdom. We ought to be walking in the light. We ought to be walking in such a way that encourages one another. We read from Ephesians 5 earlier. What are we to do? How can we bear the weight and pressure of all these things? To whom do we turn? Again, we turn to the everlasting God and we ask him for help. This final section contains a string of requests. We need wisdom, so he asks for wisdom. Verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. This is one of my favorite verses in Psalm 90. I try to pray this verse whenever we celebrate birthdays. I think it's helpful to give us the right perspective with each new year. And really, it would be a good prayer to offer daily. Lord, teach us to number our days, to remember that we do not live forever. And because that is true, we must live purposefully. We must live each day under his sovereignty and for his glory. Paul said in Ephesians 5, to redeem the time, to make sure that we're buying back each moment of our day. We're not wasting or squandering the time that we have because our life is brief. So we need to use it well. And for that, we need wisdom. We need wisdom, but we also need his compassion because we do not always live wisely. Verse 13. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. We feel that sense of loss in our relationship with the Lord when we sin. Those of us who truly believe, those who belong to the Lord, can never actually lose fellowship with God. It's not possible. He's the one who holds us. We don't achieve fellowship on our own, and we don't lose fellowship on our own. But we may feel that he is far from us at times. We may feel his chastening hand heavily upon us. In those times, we plead for mercy. Lord, have mercy, have compassion. 
We humbly plead for mercy, knowing that in order for us to live well, we need to experience the mercy of God. We need to constantly fall back upon the mercy of God. And just as God is eternal and faithful, I think it says in Jeremiah that his mercies are new. How often? Every morning. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.13, that even if we deny him, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. Well, we need his wisdom, we need his compassion, we also need his joy. Verses 14 through 16. Satisfy us in the morning. I'm sorry, 14 and 15. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. He uses that key phrase we've seen over and over again in the Psalter, the steadfast love. This is the covenant faithfulness that we often speak of. That is his loving kindness, the covenant love that God has for his people to redeem them, to keep them, to bless them. In fact, this whole last section is predicated upon the goodness and grace of God. The covenant language reminds us, as it says in Joel 2, and according to what God revealed to Moses in Exodus 34, that he is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That is who he is. And remember, he is God from everlasting to everlasting. Time does not change anything about his character or his person. And so if he is a God who is compassionate and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in love, then he is that way forever. It doesn't matter what happens in life. It doesn't matter how thick-headed you are sometimes, how thick-headed I am sometimes, how many times we stumble and fall. He is still the same God. And he still offers mercy and compassion to us. And he still beckons us to come and to receive mercy and to find grace to help when we need. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. And we may rejoice and be glad all the days of our lives. In the midst of our brief, wearying lives, we need your covenant, faithful love to sustain us. David refers to this in another place as the joy of our salvation. That sense of satisfaction in God and the, in the, the salvation of God fuels our ability to endure in the midst of affliction. He goes on, he says, make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we've seen evil. The contrast is evident in this passage. Though we may have brief lives and though these days may be filled with affliction, Moses here prays that for as many days as we've experienced affliction, that we would also experience his joy, his favor. We need his wisdom. We need his compassion. We need his joy, his strength. We also need his power. Verse 16, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Lord, let us see your power at work. In the same way that we have seen affliction again, let us see your power, your work in us. As Paul says, God is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think according to his power that is at work in us. This is a prayer for us to be able to see his power working in us. Sometimes we don't see it. Again, sometimes we don't feel God at work in us, but we know that he is. We know that he is because he's promised to work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is a prayer. God, show me, help me to see it. Because again, in the midst of those difficult times, those dark times, those depressing times, those times when we fear 
our lives, fear for our lives or for the lives of someone else, sometimes it's, it's dark and it's discouraging and it's heartbreaking. God, help us to see how you're working. I wonder if anyone else needs that kind of work, that kind of strength. If anyone else needs to see the Lord today. When I read scripture, I like to try to answer the question and encourage others as they read through scripture. Answer the question, what's the difference between a believer and an unbeliever? I think this is a large part of it. A believer knows that they need Jesus. That's probably the biggest difference. That's the epitome of humility. That's where prayer begins. That's where salvation begins. I need Jesus. When we come together, when we gather together, I try to say this often, as often as I can. We're not gathering together because we're perfect people, because we know it all, because we got it all together. So don't don't fake like you got it all together. The reason why we get together is because we don't have it all together and we know someone who has it all together and we know someone who's promised to help us to get it together and we need him. And so we keep coming back to him over and over and over again. That's what it means to be a believer. We believe and we keep believing. We trust and we keep trusting. We seek and we keep seeking and we keep clinging. We keep looking to him as our refuge. Verse 17 is a summary of this last section. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. We desire to live this life well. We desire for our brief trial-filled lives to count for something in his eyes. We know that we cannot accomplish this on our own, and thus we need his favor. We need his grace. And again, this is a prayer, and it should always be our prayer. Give us your grace to do your work for your glory. Establish the work of our hands. This is not our own selfish work. This is his work. Lord, help us to do what you've called us to do. Again, for Israel, part of their calling, a large part of their calling was to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And likewise for us. The reason why we're here as a church is not for us to look pretty sitting in the pews. It's for us to live for the glory of Jesus Christ. We're called together so that we can be a blessing to one another Again, Ephesians 5, so that we can walk in love, walk in light, walk in wisdom, so that we can build up and encourage and teach and admonish one another, so that we can strengthen one another, so that the body of Christ is built up. And we're also here to reach out with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. That's what we're here for. And that's what we're praying. That's the end to which we're praying, that God would make that possible. We're reminded of these things when we consider the end. Again, we don't consider the end in some morbid sense to give ourselves bad dreams. But we do it to remind us that life is not all about us. We're not the center of the universe. There is one who is eternally greater. As we experience the difficulties of life, as we come face to face with that reality... We're reminded that the one who is eternally greater beckons for us to make him our refuge. As we're reminded of our mortality, we're 
reminded of the reason for our mortality, our sin, as we are reminded that our gracious God sees our sin ever before him in the light of his presence, it's open and laid bare. We wouldn't be so quick to complain about things that happen in life, but we would be more thankful for all the good that he does when we deserve so much less. As we are reminded of our mortality, the brevity of our life, we're reminded of our need for him. We need his wisdom. We need his joy. We need his mercy. We need to see his work in our lives. We need to live for his glory and to do his work. My prayer, my prayer, as it always is for all of us, is that the Lord would make these things true of us. That we would continually see him as he is, for who he is, as the everlasting God. And that we would seek to live for his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you again for your word, which is true. Your word, which sanctifies us. Thank you for the reminder that you are the everlasting God. I pray for my friends as they endure whatever it is that they're enduring today. All the the difficult trials that you allow us to go through in order to mature our faith. I pray, God, that they would endure those with a heart of faith. With confidence that you are not, you have not turned your back on us but that indeed you are working even through these things for our good and for your glory. Remind us that you are the everlasting God. Remind us that we need you daily. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.